book. It is one chapter, so we're looking at verses here. So we'll begin uh, picking up there in verse 8, and we'll read down through verse 10. The topic tonight is apostates illustrated and then danger in the church, Jude 8 through 10. Jude writes, and he says, Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh. They reject authority and they speak evil of dignitaries. Verse 9, yet Michael the archangel in contending with the devil, when he disputed regarding or about the body of Moses, dared not to bring against him, the devil, a reviling accusation, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. But these, speaking of the apostates, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, verse 11, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Well, the grass withers and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God abides forever. We come again, continuing our study through this book of Jude, and we find that he continues to give us examples of explaining why we are to be on guard uh, in the church, in the New Testament church. And he points to the fact that as he gives these descriptions of, of apostates, the reason they are so dangerous is they are stealthy. They do not announce that, hey, we're here to destroy the church. Hey, we're here to pervert the gospel. Hey, we're here to undermine the lordship of Christ, so, so follow us. In fact, one illustration has been given that I think it's hard to top, and it's simply, you could describe it like this, it's like modern day terrorism, just like we see modern day terrorism in the world today. We say that terrorists come and they acclimate themselves to a country, they somewhat take up normal routines, they live normal uh, lives, and then one day, unbeknownst to those that they're attempting to bomb or kill, they take on a, some type of plan, and they sabotage a city or a plane or, spiritually, a church. This is the type of description that Jude is giving to us. We've already looked at, let's review just for a second, beginning there in verse 4, they are characterized as we see, Jude loves the number three triads. He, he regularly is illustrating in one, two, three. So beginning in verse four, they are ungodly. They are perverting grace. And they also, verse four, they deny the Lord Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our last time together, it's been a few weeks because of the Christmas season when we looked at it. But our last time together, we spent ex extensive time looking at the three historical illustrations that then Jude gives of saying, this is how God feels about those who mistreat, uh, who, who handle the things of God in an ungodly way. Particularly, he gave the three historical illustrations, verse 5, the Israelites in the wilderness, the angels that sinned. And then Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. And if we were to reduce it to one word, if you remember, God judged, verse 5, the Israelites in the desert, their, their heart sin was unbelief. The angels, the root sin was rebellion against authority. Sodom and Gomorrah, the root sin was sexual perversion. So now we come to verses 8 through 11, 8 through 10, and we see that 
Jude continues his teaching to the church about why apostates are such a concern, why they're such a big deal. And it's a reminder to us today that in the professing church around the world, that as we look at the church, the professing church, mainline denominations, there is definitely an intolerance for truth. The spirit of our age makes it difficult really to criticize anything except those who in our text, like Jude, stand for the truth. The church today struggles with this idea of are there really people, ideas, and actions that that the Lord would have us to stand against. You could say it like this, it's not popular to take a stand. To take a stand, even for, we're talking about not for us, we're talking about for the Lord. To take a stand for the gospel takes courage. Courage is lacking in supply uh, today. There are many people who'd rather just have the peace to dismantle God's ordained way of structure in the home, the church, and government. And they would rather just have peace and tolerance and, in a sense, flip on its head the ordained pattern or order that the Lord has. So the theme is often in many mainline denominations and churches that we are just to be loving and kind. Uh, We are to be patient and loving and let God take care of everything else. Well, that is certainly foreign to Jude here. And it's certainly foreign to the Scriptures. It's foreign to Peter. It's foreign to Paul who give these warnings very sternly. In the New Testament, we find a very stern approach is given and taken when the church is threatened. In fact, we'll refer to this passage twice tonight, but I want to ask you to turn to Titus 1, verse 9, and I just want to remind us of the elder's task, the elder's task, the spiritual leader in the church's task. It's good for us to kind of revisit the the handbook. I find myself visiting 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus uh, daily, regularly, weekly, because it reminds me of my calling, what, what our calling is as elders in the local church. Titus 1 verse 9, Paul says this to Titus. He says, remember, Titus, you're to hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Titus, you need to know the word. You need to know the truth so that those who are out of line with the truth whether willfully or ignorantly, can be guided back to the truth, exhorted, encouraged. Convict those who contradict. There's a fine line between ignorance and willfulness. There's a fine line between those who make mistakes, those who are babes in Christ, who are only feeding upon the milk of God's word, and those who are willfully wolves within the church. Verse 10, he says, For there are many insubordinate, both idle, idle talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert, notice the fallout of it, who subvert whole households teaching things that they ought not to teach. So we see that this is the key calling of, a, of a, an elder, a pastor, who leads a church to be able to do these things, and yet an elder and a pastor also knows at the same time that it's not popular. He doesn't live for this. He doesn't long for it. He doesn't want to do it. In fact, it's one of the hardest things he ever does But he also knows that when he does it, there's friendly fire. There's often shots fired in the back. How unloving. I thought we are called to reach the lost. I thought we are called to love people. And absolutely we are. It's truth and grace. Grace and truth. Both and, not not either or. And as I was talking with a brother this morning after the service, talk about a, a particular situation, I just said it's hard. Our calling is to be proactive. Our desire is to see the lost saved but it's a whole other category altogether 
when there are those who over the evidence of time or even a short time make it clear we don't hold to what you're teaching or preaching. We actually believe this or we believe that. And you have to address that and you have to converse about that. And you have to say, well, this is what we believe. This is what we teach. And we do not hold to that. You will not teach that or talk of that here. And what we're talking about is extra biblical doctrine or things outside of Scripture. When you do that, when an elder does that, like Jude is shepherding our hearts here this evening, in today's day and age, you will be called unloving, unkind, intolerant. So as we look here, what Jude's description is, is these apostates are unholy people, but yet they have influence. And it is an unholy influence, much like cancer within the body certainly affects the body. These are those who are a cancerous tumor upon the life of the church. In a biblical church, we are a redeemed church. We are redeemed sinners that are being built up by the Word of God, the power of God, and the Spirit of God. There is repentance and there is reconciliation amongst the bodies. But here, what we see in Jude's description of verses 8 through 11, that the fruit that is manifested by the apostates is that we do not see a building up work of the Holy Spirit within them. There is not a growth in grace and a building up of the body of Christ and appointing others to Jesus. There is a drawing people to themselves. There is a destroying work. Instead of a building up, there is a breakdown. That's why the, I feel like the illustration of terrorism is, is a great one. It's sabotage within the body. It's sabotage, you could say, within the home. It's sabotage within the, the realms that God has ordained. And tonight we're going to look at briefly, notice here, that in verses 8 and 9, we're going to take a look at their unholy boldness. And that is probably as far as we're going to be able to get tonight. But the main points we'll frame our thoughts around is unholy boldness. In verse 10, unholy ignorance. And then verse 11, unholy ambition. Unholy ambition. So number one, unholy boldness in verses 8 and 9. Look there back in the text with me. Jude says, likewise also, these dreamers defile the flesh. They reject authority. They speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending for the devil, when he disputed for the body of Moses, dared not to bring against him a reviling accusation, but simply said, not on my own authority, I don't rebuke you, the Lord rebuke you. This is an interesting passage of Scripture. Jude has a knack here for, for bringing up so much in a short post-stamp epistle, uh, stuff that seems, uh, I don't know, on the surface, but as you kind of meditate on it, you're like, whoa, what did he just say? And that's what we find here in this text. But I want us to think about this theme unholy boldness. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? I thought boldness, we need boldness. Well, we certainly need boldness today, don't we? We need boldness for Christ. We need a boldness for the preaching of the gospel. We need a boldness for his grace and his truth. We need a boldness to minimize the fear of man and to grow in the fear of the Lord. Uh, as we were talking about this morning, we need to keep looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That, that, that is a good confidence. That is a good boldness. But these are not bold in those ways. In fact, these are insane. Apostates, if you're taking notes, you can write down this phrase, apostates are insane. What do we mean by that? They have an insane boldness. They are literally crazy. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, reminds us, as Jude is saying, they are bold, but in a wrong sense, in a dangerous sense. They should have fear, but they don't have fear. 2 Peter 2.9, especially, Peter says, those who walk according to the flesh 
in the lust of uncleanness. They despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Notice how Peter now compliments what Jude is saying, or Jude Peter. He says, whereas angels who are greater in power and might are, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Such interesting statements here. So here we find in Jude's passage, they are compared to Balaam, who loved gain from wrongdoing, engaging in madness. Ultimately, by God's sovereignty, Balaam had to be restrained by nothing more interesting than a talking donkey. A donkey who God empowered to speak to pull him back, to, cease, to cause him to cease from pursuing his madness against the Lord. And these are the same way. These are those individuals. Here we find that they are bold, and yet in the same way that Balaam did not know to be concerned, to be afraid, and literally a jackass rebukes him, both in action and in word. One of the lowest moments, one of the most disparaging moments, literally one of the moments where, where someone should truly be ashamed, Balaam didn't get it. In fact, if you know the context, he began to beat the animal, strike the animal, and the animal sees the spirit realm. Now, not to go on and on, uh, but the animals, the scripture makes clear that the animal was able to see the angel of the Lord standing in front of him, was scared, he stopped, he did not continue on, and yet Balaam doesn't see the spirit realm, that third dimension, and I thank God that he does not allow us to see the third dimension. I think we would live in fear all the days of our life if, if we were just thinking about all those things. But they're real, and we'll touch on them briefly tonight. We will not stay very, uh, on them very long. But Balaam is rebuked, and ultimately, as he continues to beat the animal, the animal speaks to him by God's enabling power and rebukes Balaam for his sin against the Lord. As we look here in this text, we see that this boldness that apostates have is unholy in, in two ways. But, uh, Jude makes his argument like this. He states it in a positive way and in a negative way. It is like one thing, and yet it is unlike something else. As we look here in our text, verse 8, we see that this insane boldness, this unholy boldness, is like those that have already been judged in the past. Notice how verse 8 links what has come before now with what Jude continues to say. In some translations, you'll see the word yet. Uh, in other translations, likewise, our New King James has it that way, verse 8, the word likewise brings into a connection that in the same way that judgment fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah, fire from heaven literally judged them immediately, swiftly, sternly, severely, uh, finally, and in fact, all three of those cases, uh, those attributes are there. In the same way, God will judge the apostates 100% of the time. This text should scream, should shout to anyone who is of this baser sort, for lack of better words. Uh, it should shout as a warning to anyone who would listen. Simply look to the apostates, and if the Holy Spirit of God awakens you to see this is the fruit of your life, God forbid. But yet, if God does, look to this text and understand that there is judgment coming upon you and upon these who manifest these attributes in the life of the church. There is an insanity that is present here. And so we want to understand that their actions are not to be imitated. They're brazen, they're bold. And so we see this, this boldness described in our text in this way. There is, first of all, a boldness to defile the flesh. 
a boldness, this unholy boldness is characterized in our text. First of all, Jude says, there is a boldness to defile the flesh. This is an interesting phrase. In fact, we could ask the question, what exactly is Jude saying? What does it mean to defile the flesh? I do not think, as even though Jude is connecting um, the previous examples, maybe the most recent one there, verse 7, is Sodom and Gomorrah. I do not think, per se, he's making a connection of saying that the apostate sin here in our text is explicitly a homosexuality. I think he's just simply saying, in the same way as they manifest the fruits of the flesh, defiling the flesh could include that, uh, they will be judged of the Lord. Our text here implies an unholy boldness. Ultimately, as you say, what does defile the flesh mean? Here, here's what we mean. It's an unholy boldness to engage in sexual immorality. But here's how it's different from, say, a Christian who falls or stumbles or a professing Christian who falls and stumbles. The apostate uses the things of God to excuse it. The apostate says, listen, this is my sin, and I'm not even ashamed of my sin. In fact, God has given me the privilege of the sin because I am who I am. Apostates use their service that God, quote unquote, they say God has called them to, to serve the church. It might be as a, as a Sunday school teacher. It might be as a pastor, teacher, elder. It could be in any number of things. But within the life of a local church, as unpleasant as all these, these things are, an apostate simply says this, it's not just sin. It's not, oh, I have sinned. It's, yeah, I sinned. And he's not even ashamed of it. There's a numbness of conscience. There's a numbness of heart and mind where the shame that should be there is not there. In fact, there is a gloating. There is a continuing. There is a boasting. There is a one sense, as you think about headlines and maybe famous people, past and present or whatever, uh, who are exposed to be frauds or those types of things. There is a boldness there. There is an excuse there. In fact, we could say as we study church history and study the scriptures that false religion and idolatry and sexual immorality go hand in, in hand all throughout time, all throughout history, all throughout the scriptures. So there's an insane boldness. And you say, again, why do you say that? Well, this boldness is one where they are literally, excuse me, prostituting the things of God for their own devices, for their own wickedness. And when we think about it on that level, they will stand and give an account for their sin. It's not just sin. It's not just, I, I'm not trying to minimize sin. It's not just a believer who sins. This is someone who sins and sins boldly. This is a believer who says, yes, and I deserve this. Yes, and God has given me this. This is a manipulator. This is a groomer. This is someone who is gross and immorality and uses their position to extort the least of these. And again, this is just as unpleasant for me to teach and preach as it is for you to hear. We can think of examples within, say, the Roman Catholic Church who falsely teaches celibacy for its leaders and its priests. And we see the fruit of that. But friends, it is not limited to the Roman Catholic Church. Every denomination, every group that calls the name of Christ has people within their midst who are guilty of these things, lest we say, well, that's over there, or, or that's over there. Should we, we should all pray and say, God, protect us from such things. God, put a hedge of protection around Grace Church from ever having to go through something like this. But we can see in denominations and camps and groups, there are those who abuse this position or that position or that position 
so that they can fulfill the lust of the flesh and of the mind. Secondly, moving quickly, we want to move on from that. There is an insane boldness, a boldness to defile the flesh. Then there's a boldness to reject authority. And notice how Jude puts these things as they're all on the same level. This is not like, well, here's here, sin, this is more sin number one, and then here's sin number two. These are, these are all grievous sins. There's an insane boldness that rejects authority, verse 8. In fact, you could say the root of the sin is, is pride. Pride is the root sin of the apostate. You, you can't tell them anything. They, they know all things. They know it all. They're never wrong. They never manifest a, a spirit of humility or repentance or submission. Proud and arrogant and exalted they would be in their own minds and manifest. They can no longer be instructed. They despise, as we see here in our text, they despise and reject authority. And ultimately, when you despise and reject authority, who are you rejecting? You're rejecting God. You're not rejecting your dad. You're not rejecting your pastor. You're not rejecting your teacher. Ultimately, you're, you are rejecting God. More about that in just a moment. Because all authority comes from God. Authority is simply, you can say it like this. God has all authority, Jesus says in Matthew 28. All authority has been given unto me. And then within that, in the God-ordained means of government and home and church, all institutions that God has ordained, that authority is, listen here, a delegated authority. It does not begin with you, and it does not end with you. It does not begin with me, and it does not end with me. All of us. Titus, going back to Titus 1, verse 9. Again, in verse 10, if you notice here, when we read, he says, Paul says to Titus, he says, For there are many, notice here, rebellious men. There are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So the elder has to know that when there's a fruit that begins to be manifested here, his warning, his radar needs to go up. This word, rebellious or rebellion, means this. It's not subject to rule. It's not subject to be led. It's not subject to submission. So, so how do we see this in the life of the church? Well, on the individual heart level, like I said, this person knows everything. They're not growing. They're not being fed. They're not showing the fruit of the Spirit as Galatians describes it. In fact, they are the, they are the standard. And again, there's no humility present in any way in their heart and in their life. More manifestly given, they will not submit to the Lordship of Christ. In fact, I hope you don't miss this. Because I know in our church, even here, we have people from different streams and backgrounds. Uh, you've, you, you've been, God, listen, the Christian life is one of a journey, isn't it? A sojourning. Where, where we are today, it wasn't where we were at the beginning, right? We can all think of when we first got saved and our exposure and the milk of the word, as we talked about this morning, and, and then moving on into the meat of the word. And uh, we don't say that in pride, but we just say, God, thank you for continuing to lead us into the truth and shepherding our hearts. But as we look at this, they will not submit to the lordship of Christ. And I will tell you this, your radar should go up anytime you hear someone minimize the lordship of Christ. There are pastors galore in camps of all different types, traditions of all different types, who love to exalt the gospel of grace and minimize the authority of Christ. And when that happens, your radar needs to go off because you need to be concerned. I'm not saying they're automatically an apostate, but this is one of the fruits of an apostate. They themselves will not submit to the worship of Christ. But this is not just an individual fruit. They are leaders. They are in the life of the church. 
More often than not, this rebellion is expressed both directly and indirectly. Directly by minimizing and putting down the Word of God. We need to be careful there. And then also indirectly in that the fruit of their lives and their behavior will not submit to church authority. I'm not anybody, but I've grown up in church. I've grown up in the life of the church. My granddad was a pastor. My father is a pastor. And so that, that's just witnessing and watching the, the, those generations lead. And seeing people come and go, seeing someone get their hand slapped, for lack of better words, or saying, actually, we're not going to do that right now, or pastoral authority being exercised, and then they'll leave over something like that. They cannot be led, and they'll go from this church to that church and that church. And, and so you say, hey, has anyone ever seen so-and-so? And next thing you know, 10 churches later, they're, they're fully out of church, and here's the root problem. They cannot submit to authority. does not mean that they equate being an apostate. But in apostate, this is one of the fruits of what they manifest. They are the standard. They are the authority. They cannot be led. They cannot be shepherded. In fact, they minimize and reduce the lordship of Christ. And friends, I want to tell you, there are thousands, or I would just say at least this, hundreds upon hundreds of Baptist churches, just to get a little bit closer to home, who have minimized the gospel, who've watered down the gospel, who've made a cheap gospel of grace and yet not a full-orbed gospel. And to give any truth in a partial truth is really to give a false truth. But here's what I'm trying to get at. The fruit of those churches is this. The fruit of those churches. I can think of direct churches right now that I could name and just say the fruit of them is broken homes, broken marriages, broken churches, fallen pastors, fallen leaders. This is the fruit of those who minimize both directly and indirectly the word of God. So before I move on from this point, let's just give praise to God that, that, that God has, not gloatingly, again, let's give praise to him that the emphasis here at Grace is what it is, that it's past and it's present, and God, by God's grace, its future will continue to stay in the stream of what does the word of God say. It's not what I say, it's not what you say, but what says the scriptures. And let's submit to that. Let repentance be known. Let it be the fruit of our lives, but let us be those who follow the word of God. Do I have the right crowd? I'm not normally trying to invoke a response, but friends, this is too important. Are you with me on this? I certainly hope so. In fact, if you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3, uh, excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, I want to kind of call us back to the calling of the leadership of the church. Because this is what we are to be on guard against. And so I just want to say, y'all pray for Pat and Mike and myself and future elders here at our church that we will know how to guide and navigate through these different types of situations. In fact, 2 Timothy uh, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 5 says this. Paul says, but know, Timothy, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Do you see some of these root sins we're already describing? Disobedient to parents or to authority, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But notice here, having a form of godliness but denying its power. That is the essence of apostates. They have a form they look right, they sound right, they talk right, but they have no power of the gospel being manifested in their life. They have no heart for the Lord. 
no fruit of the Spirit being manifested in their life. Now, it's not simply to recognize that. Notice what Paul says. He says, and from such people, turn away, turn away. There are going to be times in your, your life, there's people in your family, there's people uh, that you are acquainted with that you're going to have to turn away from. And in that action, um, there's, going to be, there's going to be like a, a, an offense. Uh, there's, there's going to be a who do you think you are type of thing. That, that, that type of decision is never easy. For some of you, it might be the person you're married to, and that is a difficult, dynamic thing you have to work through, and you have to figure that out and apply the Scriptures to an unbelieving spouse or that type of thing. But that's not what we're talking about here. Ultimately, there comes a point from such turn away, for of this sort are those who creep into houses and make captives of gullible women, loaded or laden down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as again, notice these Old Testament examples. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. They are men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. So as we think about this insaneness, if you will, towards authority, a disobedience toward God-ordained authority, I just want to remind our church family, our children, our teens, and moms and dads and dads and husbands, as we touched even on this morning, that we are all accountable to God. And God's path of blessing for my life, God's path of blessing for your life, always comes through the channels of his ordained authority. In as, let me give a clause here, it is consistent with the word of God. In that, it is consistent with the scriptures, in the home, in the church, and even in the government. And for the first time in our lifetimes, and many of us could say, are we finding this, the tension and the friction between even submitting to the government and yet submitting to the word of God? But yet, the scripture is very clear where we can, we are, and should submit to the delegated authority that God has placed over us. So an unholy boldness that defiles the flesh, an unholy boldness that rejects authority. Now, before we move on, actually moving into the, next, the third point, we see that this boldness is connected to, to reject authority to blaspheme angels. And we'll conclude with this point for our study this evening. These apostates are so delusional that they have the mindset that they can order Satan to do certain things, that they can order demons to be subjected. Their lunacy is expressed in the way of how they talk to the devil, talk about the devil, and even spirit beings. Now, that may sound unusual to you. You may say, wait a second, LeGrand, it sounds like you're kind of you know, supporting the devil or, or supporting demons. No, not at all. But one thing the scripture makes clear is that there are realms that need to be recognized. Even within the spiritual angelic realm, there is a mutual recognition of position and authority. I would remind all of us that Lucifer was really second to God, and in his fall, Lucifer became the devil. Michael, the archangel, the only one mentioned in scripture as the archangel, as we see here in our text, did not dare to bring a railing accusation against the devil. So lest you and I think how we talk about the devil is not important, just simply look to this text. But here's the insanity of apostates. They talk about the devil as if they have him on a string. But it's really the devil who has them on a string. 
How they handle the devil really shows how crazy they are, the lunacy of their delusion in that they think they have him under their control when really he has them under his control. In fact, you could say it like this. Think about modern TV preachers who tend to be more within the realm of healings and within signs and wonders. You will regularly hear them say phrases like this. We're going to bind the devil tonight, church. Go bind the devil. Pray in such a way that you will bind the devil. Listen, Michael the archangel understands that the only authority to deal with Satan is God's authority. And that's what we'll see here in a minute. He says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. So by focusing so much upon them, speaking of the angelic realm, or you could say the fallen angelic realm. In fact, I would tell you there's a... um, an overabundance, a sordid attention by many false teachers given to the fallen realm, the devil, his minions, his demons. It's all they ever seem to talk about. You would almost forget that God is sovereign. To hear them teach and preach, you would think that Satan is, is sovereign. And yet, they're delusional to think that they have power over sovereign Satan. So they imagine that they have the power to speak authoritatively against the devil and his demons, speaking with railing accusations, self-inflated judgments, statements that make them seem big and powerful that are full of pride. This boldness is literally insanity. In fact, this boldness is unlike holy creatures, as we see verse 9, the contrast that Jude gives. Jude makes the point that, again, that Michael the archangel presumed not to do what these men presume to do. To do. And that's where we invoke here, Jude invokes here in verse 9, yet Michael the archangel in contending with the devil, whatever that is. We don't, we don't know, though. That's what we see that we say, okay, what does that mean? Take us to that, explain to that. Those of us who, who are interested in such things, we say we'd like more information. And so where the scriptures speak, we speak. Where the scripture is silent, we are silent. All we know, verse 9 says that there is an altercation. And so when uh, Michael, the archangel, this is the only mention in Scripture of this, but I would tell you, turn to Deuteronomy 34, verse 5. Deuteronomy 34, verse 5. Jude points here in our text, Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not to bring against him a reviling accusation, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. So we're just going to compare Scripture with Scripture and say, this is what we know. Here, Jude gives us this insight, giving a quote from an extra canonical book from scripture jude is the only one who mentions this as a as an aside we'll simply rest with the fact that jude mentions it deuteronomy chapter 34 verse 5 this is written so moses the servant of the lord died there in the land of moab according to the word of the lord and he buried him in the valley in the land of moab opposite of beth pure but no one knows Speaking of Moses, no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old, and not only that, when he died, his eyes were not dim nor his natural vigor diminished. Let's just remind ourselves, not only did Moses sin, and also he sinned in response to the unbelief and frustration with the children of Israel, but it did not have to end that way. Moses was fully capable and able to lead the children of God into the promised land. Yet we see that even the very best of men are men at their very best. Now, we see that in this text that nothing else is given 
other than the fact that the Lord seems to have disposed, he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab. Now, one thing we know from Scripture is that angels do God's bidding. They are sent ones from God. So here in this text, it's written that God buried him, but it seems as if God delegated to Michael, the archangel, to carry out the work of burying the body of Moses in the land of Moab. So as we look at this text, we can just assume that maybe Michael was given those orders, as Jude says, to bury the body of Moses. As Michael is obeying God, it seems as if he's involved in a dispute for the body of Moses. We can imagine, as we know, that Satan is the accuser, that Satan would love to do a number of things. Many commentators have surmised on this text, what would Satan do with the body of Moses? Well, we know that Satan's chief, one of his chief sins or um, forms of imprisonment is simply idolatry. It would not be too far to suppose that Satan would take the body of Moses and turn it into a shrine, turn it into something to be worshipped. If you think about the Roman Catholic Church and all the archives of what they have, things to be worshipped and things to be gone and seen, and, and, and uh, if, if you take all the wood that they say they have of the cross, there would be 3,000 crosses just to be fantastic. But it is no doubt that Satan would take that and use it to be something as an obstacle, something to be worshipped, something to be a shrine or a mecca for the people of God and for future generations. We, we just don't know. But what we do know, some have said, one commentator says this, my, uh, Satan may have come to Michael hoping to claim rights to the body of Moses because of maybe some particular grievous sin that Moses had sinned. And what a wonderful thought it is, just by way of surmising, taking the scriptures together, that Michael simply pointed him to being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and saying, you have no authority here. I have my instructions from God. Well, again, those are things that we just do not know. But what we do know is that Michael was a man, or excuse me, an angel, an archangel under authority who simply says this, not I bind you, nothing fantastic, simply not my authority, but the Lord's authority, the Lord rebuke you. And there's a principle here that Michael displays for us. He displays for us that he is careful, notice here, not to step outside his boundary of authority. What a, what a great example this is for us. In fact, Peter ties this issue to the a fact of basic spiritual knowledge. In fact, if you'll go back to the New Testament with me as we go back, making our way back to the book of Jude. 2 Peter 2 verse 9, uh, Peter makes notice of this as well, as we've mentioned already. He says that those who are, beginning in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. Notice here, and they despise authority. They are presumptuous. They are self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels, as we mentioned, who are greater in power of might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Bottom line, as we kind of round out our thoughts here, what we see in verses 8 and 9 is that this fruit of the apostates is one of in insanity. In one sense, we understand that as when we are a believer, a child of God, when we're in sin or when we are in unconfessed sin, continuing in a hardness of heart, if you will, that's the closest we are to literal insanity in this life under grace. We're not thinking clearly. We're, we're out of the will of God. Our reasoning faculties are off base. We could point to the example of, of David in the year of his unconfessed sin, how the very facets of the marrow of his life and juice of his life's vigor was completely taken from him. But here what we find 
as we look at this passage is that apostates ought to tremble. They should tremble. But as we close our thoughts tonight, they are brazen. They are arrogant in their sin. So I'm emphasizing this because the point here is not to give you factual knowledge. The point here is that we examine ourselves, but even more importantly, that if or should this happen to your exposure, you will know the difference between what is kind and unkind. We live in a day that is focused on tone, having the right tone, and certainly tone is important, but there's an overemphasis on tone, if you will, or love or kindness to the, notice here, the expense of the truth, to the expense of the truth. Maybe to give an illustration in the same way that a father has to have discernment to know how to welcome a stranger to the table for a family meal, but also know when someone should not be welcomed to the table for a family meal. Paul says in Timothy, he says, a man that does not know how to provide for his own family, shepherd his own family, is worse than an an infidel. So so, so we're not trying to go to the nth degree of simply saying we're just to love everyone and and to let everybody in the door and never stand against anyone. You wouldn't even do that in your own home or your own family. You would not let your family be hurt if you had knowledge and understanding and a sense of the Spirit's leading, and yet many within the church do. They do just that because they have a fear of man more than they have a fear of God. So may God help us as the church, as we don't spend lots of time talking about these themes, but this is the purpose of Jude. This is the purpose of Jude, to show us that it's real, it's true, and that we need the power of the Holy Spirit, and we need the authority of the Word of God to inform and to teach and to guide us. Bottom line issue, we should tremble at the disregard for authority that we see some people manifest within the body of Christ. They reject the Lordship of Christ. They reject the Headship of Christ. They minimize repentance. They glorify sin. They minimize submission to Christ as Lord. They reduce the gospel to salvation from hell but nothing else. They set aside God's ordained structure for the gospel, for the home, and for the church. Bottom line, they are self, self-willed. As our teens quoted this morning, Romans 8, verse 8, So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So may the Lord help us. May he keep our church safe from harm, safe from this type of delusion. May he give our fathers boldness and courage. May he give our pastors and our elders and our deacons and those who teach and administer the word of God boldness and courage. May he give you as Christian men and women boldness and courage to be able to reason from the scriptures. The task, church, listen, the task that we are given is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so if God wants us to study this, and as we are, there's a reason for it, so that you will grow up into maturity, and when you face this, you will be prepared, you will be equipped for whatever it is as you engage with these types of individuals. Well, let's pray together as we prepare for the table of the Lord. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it's a fine balance to try to preach your word authoritatively and passionately, and yet, Lord, know that all of us are simply recipients of your grace. Lord, we thank you for the grace of God in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the grace of God that not only saves us from our sin, but Lord, shows us the truth and leads us into all truth. Father, we pray in a protective sense that while we understand these realities are true and real, we just ask that you would put a hedge of protection around Grace Church. Lord, that you would keep us undefiled, Lord, that you would keep our heart for the gospel, sure, sensitive and passionate. And Lord, a desire to reach the lost as we are 
obviously manifesting with some of the ministries you've brought our way. We have a desire, Lord, to reach this city, to reach this county, and I pray, Lord, that that never gets diminished. In the same way, Lord, help us to be on guard for the truth to those who would minimize the Lordship of Christ, the authority of Christ, the authority of your word, to those who would be brazen and delusional, bold in their sin, and then say that this is given to them of the Lord. Father, all of us are completely in need of your grace. Keeping us, as Jude says you will do, you will keep us, those of us who are the elect, those who are your children, those who you have called, you will keep us from stumbling. You will keep us from falling. And this is our hope. This is our plea as we look to Jesus, the author and the finisher, the finisher of our faith. Father, we're confident that what Paul says is true in Philippians 1, that you will complete that good work that you have begun in us. Father, our hearts rejoice at that, for we know we have no strength to complete it of ourselves. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. And we give you the glory and the praise for that. As we turn towards your table, Lord, we pray that you would quiet our hearts, namely my heart coming from one plateau and then coming down to another. I pray that you would help us as we look to the example of Christ. It's Christ that we pray. Amen.